You're listening to Philippians, a Sunday school series taught by Andrew McComb at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Two weeks ago, we began the message by me recollecting about a song in my childhood, and it was, Let There Be Peace on Earth. And I'm fearful that for the last two weeks, many of you have been singing that song over and over again. And so I thought I'd give you another song this morning. Uh, I believe that children are the future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. No, I I don't want you to do that either. Forget that. Forget all that. The intention of the song was to remind us of Paul's longing for unity. For unity. And again, as we... As we watch the unfolding of the events in our world today, there is so much disunity. And we hear Paul's heart to the Philippian church, of course, wanting them to be unified of one mind. But this idea of unity is not new for Paul. Not new at all. We won't take the time this morning to look at Ephesians chapter 2. But in Ephesians 2, Paul is speaking to a, basically a Gentile congregation And he's telling them that you are Gentiles in the flesh. Now remember, in the Jewish there are only two groups of people. There are Jews and everyone else, right? There is the Jew and the Goyim, which annoy him. They're they're the Gentiles, and it didn't matter what Gentiles, that's who you were. It's a lot like today, when our Dutch say, if you're not Dutch, you ain't much. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the idea and more so for the Jewish mind. But Paul is saying to these believers in Ephesus, listen, you were Gentiles. And then he goes on this list that says, in times past, you were alienated, you were separated, you were not part of the covenant community, you were without hope and without God in the world. And and if you just think about that, because I think this morning I am speaking to a Gentile group of people That news is dismal. It's dismal. But he goes on in chapter 2 and he says this, But now, but now you have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now, because of the cross, Jesus Christ has killed that hostility between Jew and Gentile. He has broken down that middle wall of partition. What used to separate Paul says, because of Christ now, unifies. And God did a wonderful thing. He he created a new race, a new humanity. It's the church. It's a unified body of people who are now citizens and saints, all members of one household. We think of adoption. Adoption is a beautiful, wonderful gift. But oftentimes we think of it individualistically, that, oh, I was adopted. But we understand an adoption places you into a family. And because of Christ and the blood that was shed and the new heart and life that's given, we are now adopted into this family who Paul says we are citizens and saints that were joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We are the very dwelling place for God. And so he continues that that frame of thought into chapter 3, still speaking of the church, Now listen to what he says in verse number 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. And the mystery is the church. 
that God would bring these two groups, Jew and Gentile, together in one new race, in one new humanity, in the church. Which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. Now listen closely. And again, church, lean in. Listen to what Paul is saying. Don't miss this. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Human sinful nature always divides and separates. Always. And Paul speaking about the church says, listen, I want to tell you something. God is going to display his manifold wisdom. It means his, his multifaceted wisdom. When we think about the God of creation, that God says, I'm going to show you my wisdom, and not only to the world, but to the heavenly host. And God turns to the heavenly host and says, listen, if you want to see my wisdom, the many faceted angles of my wisdom, he says, look at my church. Look what I've done. I've taken the Jew and the Gentile. I've taken the hostility of fallen man. I've created a new heart and given them a new spirit. And now there is one new race, one new creation. It is the church, and they're unified, and it shouts my glory. Just wonder, church, if as the world peeks in to our congregation, if it shouts the wisdom of God, because there's a sense of unity in our midst. Unity. You see, this message of unity is not new for Paul. He's been preaching it the whole time. It's, it's actually the plan of God. And yet Paul understands that this idea of the church of Jesus Christ having one mind, of one accord, being humble, thinking of the interests of others, is not easy. Not easy. Let us not forget Paul is speaking to a church that he was part of, that he started. And, and, and here's the makeup of that church, the early church in Philippi. There is a Jewish rabbi, a man named Paul. He's a scholar. He is sitting next to a wealthy Middle Eastern fashion designer somewhere from Turkey. She is sitting next to a slave girl who we don't know where she's from, but given the context of the Roman Empire, she was probably taken into slavery because of being captured or conquered. We don't know where she's from, but we do know that here is a woman who was exploited with lots of baggage. And next to her sits a European man, a working class jailer. You want to talk about a difference in politics? Can you imagine the political views of the Roman jailer and the slave girl? Do you want to talk about a difference of preferences? Can you imagine the preferences between this rich, wealthy designer and this Roman, hardworking, European jailer? And Paul understands that. And so what he's done is he's appealed to the idea of a shared faith, the things they enjoy in Christ, the sense of family. But now he will take this hymn of Christ and appeal to the greatest model and motivation for you and I this morning. He's going to take us through a journey 
of the glory, the humiliation, and the exaltation of Christ. For those of you who have been part of our church for any length of time, this quote will be familiar to you. It's from A.W. Tozer. He said, what we think of God is the most important thing about us. And then he continues, what comes into our minds is the most important thing about us. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. And and this is so true. Listen, this morning, God is not who I think he is. God is who he said he is. But... If my concept of God is not right, then whatever that mental picture of God is, I will subconsciously move toward that and worship in that way. And what Paul wants us to do is, he wants to give us now an accurate picture of the Christ that we serve. An accurate picture. And this is imperative because the only way that we can live this life that Paul has called us to in Philippians chapter 2, to forget ourselves and to think of others. The only way to do that is to accurately see Jesus Christ. And when we do, we will know then that the gospel is well, the church is healthy, and and, and that has ramifications that we'll talk about at the end for a, a number of things. And so, in light of that now, let's move into Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Again, remember, he is talking about thinking and esteeming others better than yourself, not thinking about your own self-interest alone, but the interest of others. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, before we even dive into this, we have to see Jesus for who he is. Right? We want to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is imperative as we move through this section. You and I must understand that Jesus did not come into existence in Bethlehem. Right? Isaiah 9, 6 tells us that unto us a a child is born. And we understand that. But then it says something amazing. It says, and unto us a son is given. And so when when we delve into this passage and we talk about Jesus... We are not talking about just some great prophet or a wonderful teacher or a moral example or the best person we can think of. We are talking about the second person of the triune God, the Word. And so when we say Jesus and we're about to look into his humiliation, we must remember it did not start in Bethlehem. Jesus is the eternal God and he was adored and praised and worshipped by all the host of heaven. They sang his praises. And that's why Paul says, who being the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Jesus is in the form of God, he says. It's an interesting word. It means both an inward character of a thing and the outward form that expresses that inward character. When he says Jesus being in the form of God, he literally means that he possessed inwardly and displayed outwardly the very nature of God. Jesus, the very nature of God. 
And so for him, he didn't think equality with God was something that he had to wrestle over or grasp onto because he was equal with God. When we talk of Jesus, we must understand that he is God incarnate in the flesh. He is glorious. But now Paul changes gears. Keep in mind his glory, but now we'll look at his humiliation. He says, He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. Interesting enough, that word form of a servant is the same word that's used as the form of God, meaning that Christ became both man inwardly and outwardly, that he was the form of a servant. I love the phrase to the song that says, from the throne of endless glory to a cradle in a dirt. And so we see the glory of Christ, and yet this Jesus takes upon him the form of a servant. And we see that not only in the dirt of Bethlehem, but his entire life, he then as truly man serves wherever he's at. He doesn't think of himself. He's always thinking of others. Maybe we see before the crucifixion climax of this in John 13, where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, the job of a slave. So he takes on the form of a servant. But then he says he was made in the likeness of man. The form is man's nature. The likeness is the outward appearance of humanity. When Jesus came, I want you to know something. He did not look like Fabio, right? Margarine wasn't even invented yet. It didn't matter. He didn't have long blonde hair and sparkling blue eyes. and that, that, That's not who he was. He didn't walk down the street and you would see a halo over his head and think, oh my goodness, this is the God-man. The fact is, Isaiah tells us, he had no form or beauty that we would even desire him. Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. When you saw him, the woman at the well said, what are you, a Jew, speaking to me, a Samaritan? He looked like he was a Jewish man, a Jewish carpenter, right? Um, I think in the first century, the average height of a Jewish man was 5'5 five five to 5'8. Five and Jesus would have looked like any other man during that time. And then he says that he was not only had the form of a servant, made in the likeness of man, but being found in fashion as a man. That word fashion means the external condition, reminding us that Jesus conforms to human experience. He was a man inwardly with his feelings and his emotions. He was a man outwardly with his physical likeness, but he was a man who endured all that we endure in this world. Christ felt the longings, the pressures, the circumstances. He felt it all. There was nothing about him that was not human. This God-man sweat. He wept. He was hungry. He grew weary. And he bled. Can you see the glory of Christ who then humbles himself. And certainly, as we think of God being adored by the host of heaven, now he humbly comes to earth. But that's not all. Paul continues to tell us this. Verse 8, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, 
even the death of the cross. The cross. I know it's fashionable in our world today. We have crosses in our church. They, they sort of are a symbol of Christianity. We wear them around our necks or as earrings or bookmarks. But you must know that in the first century, polite Roman society would not speak of the cross. They would, it would be obscene to talk of crucifixion. It was horrendous. It was shameful. It was excruciating. So much so that a Roman citizen could not be put to death by a cross. That's how base it was. And yet the God of heaven comes to earth. The humility in that itself. But he doesn't stop there. He becomes obedient unto the death of the cross. My friend, listen to me. We cannot separate the cross of Christ from Christianity. It is central to everything we believe and hold dear. When you look at the gospel accounts, the book of Matthew, right, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they write of the life of Jesus Christ, two-fifths of Matthew's account is the last week of Jesus' life, his entire life. Two-fifths of the book is given to that final week of his death. Mark gives us three-fifths of the book. Luke, then, will give us a third of the book, dedicated to the, the, the death of Jesus Christ and the gospel of John, the, 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 the disciple of love, gives us nearly half of his book, is dedicated to the fact that Jesus came to live and to die by way of a cross. He was the sin bearer. He was the one to satisfy divine justice. We have the new atheist today talking about, well, this is just cosmic child abuse. How could God give his son to be abused on a cross? My friend, you don't understand. It is not cosmic child abuse. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the God to whom we need to be saved from is the God who saved us. He stepped in to our world to live a life of perfection, to show us what humanity should have been, to, to follow the law completely, and to give himself. Jesus Christ humbled himself, never thinking about himself. We have a slight picture of this in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is, is weeping and praying and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, saying, Father, if, if this cup could pass, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And here is Jesus Christ being obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And this is what Paul is reminding us of, of as we talk and think about the mind of Christ. That Jesus Christ went to the cross thinking not of himself, but thinking of you and thinking of me. If we were just to stop for a moment with that thought, the cross of Christ, how is it that we dare as God's people be full of conceit and pride and self-ambition and our own ways, thinking that the mind of Christ never thought about himself, but thought about us. So we see his glory, we see his humiliation, but now I want you to see his exaltation. Look at verse number nine. Wherefore, because he was glorious, 
because he humbled himself, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. That, that word highly exalted means super exalted. It is it's not used anywhere else in the entire New Testament but here. And because of Christ's humility, the Bible tells us that he is super exalted. And now watch this. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, when you think about this, I want you to keep the train of thought that Paul has for us here. Because sometimes we stop and think, okay, he's been exalted, and now the name is Jesus. And certainly, Jesus is the sweetest name we know. There's something about the name of Jesus that brings peace and joy to our hearts. But, but he's known by a lot of names. Just in the Gospels themselves, we see him as the light, the branch, the door, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul has more in mind here than I think we imagine sometimes. Let me just read three portions of Scripture in, in light of what we just read that, that will help us, I think, understand where Paul's going. Uh, Isaiah 42.8 says this, I am the Lord. In your Bibles, that word Lord there is capitalized, all capital letters. And that's because it's the name Yahweh or Jehovah. And that is the name that God has revealed himself by. I am Yahweh, the self-existent one. I am the creator, the sustainer. I am the sovereign king of the universe. Listen to what he says. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. It's pretty clear. God says, this is my name. I will not give it to another. No one. Now listen to Isaiah 45, verse 22 and 23. The Lord is speaking again here. And here's what he says. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. Listen, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. In the Septuagint, it's translated, and every tongue shall confess. Listen, Jesus has the essential glory of God, but because he took that glory, humbled himself, now he is exalted and been given an official glory. And the official glory says this, that at the name of Jesus, here's what every tongue will confess, and here's what every knee will bow to. And don't miss this. Jesus, the Lord saves. Christ, the anointed one. The one who has fulfilled every prophecy of the Old Testament, and the ones that are not yet fulfilled, because we know he has fulfilled these others, will be fulfilled. Jesus Christ is Lord. The name that he has been given that is above every name that we officially recognize is that of Yahweh. Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord of the Old Testament, Lord of the New Testament, Lord of creation. It is Jesus Christ 
because of his glory, because of his humiliation, now he is exalted official title. He is Lord. And listen to me, every knee will bow. Things in heaven, meaning all angelic hosts. Things in earth, every human being. Things under the earth, all who are dead and all fallen spirits. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Regardless of your spiritual state, regardless of your will, every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. From Trump to Trudeau to everyone in between, Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. He is over all of it. He is the sovereign king. And so Paul has taken us on this journey of his glory, his humiliation, and his exaltation to remind us that we are to have as a congregation. Our mindset when we come together is to be this. The same as Christ. So humble that he didn't think of himself. He gave his life for others. Listen to this quote by Calvin. He says, man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look at himself. And I hope you understand what he's saying there. It is not until we truly see who Jesus Christ is and what he has done that we truly see ourselves for who we are. If Christ our Savior, who is Lord, became a servant, how can we as his people not do the same and serve one another in unity? How can the believer stand next to the cross of Christ and be full of self-will, self-conceit, self-ambition, self-interest, be destructive and disunifying? How can that be? It can be because we've not seen the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. He was humble. The God of heaven was humble. Jesus Christ reversed all human ideas of greatness and rank. And now, serving others for the glory of God is the genuine expression of humility. And it is then and only then when the church of Jesus Christ can be unified, can be selfless, can give up their rights and their own ways to make the church look beautiful and display God's wisdom. When we live like this, the gospel is well among us. When we live like this, the church is healthy. When we live like this, our pastors and our elders who are under shepherds of Christ will serve their community. They will serve. It's not to be served, it's to serve. But listen to me. This idea of having the mind of Christ and thinking of the interest of others and having unity in our midst, that doesn't magically happen when you walk through the doors of church. Do you understand that? It's not like we come in and all of a sudden we're unified. We have the mind of Christ. We're all getting along. This mind of Christ happens from Sunday to Sunday when we leave this place when we're thinking about Christ and who he is and what he has done and his exaltation because he humbled himself, how God had honored that. This starts with husbands. Husband, you are called to love your wife 
like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It means that you are to sacrificially lead and give your life and pour yourself out for her. You are to unify your house, to be on the same page, to lead in a way that is beautiful, that leads like Christ, that serves and gives and pours out. Wife, you're called for the same. Sacrificially submit, submitting one to another. Could you imagine if in our homes we had the mind of Christ in everything that we did, where husbands were living for the betterment of their wives and wives were living for the betterment of their husbands and there was unity in their homes? Could it be that if we live like that, our kids, our neighbors, our family members might believe that God had real wisdom in what he did by reconciling a people back to himself and being unified together? It's the same for parents. It doesn't start when you drop your kid off at the nursery. It starts at home. It's a dying to self. I'm not looking for the approval of my child. I'm willing to say I don't need to be your friend at 2 or 12 because I love you, and I'm going to give of myself to instruct and to correct and to hear and to guide and direct. It starts with teenagers. Teen, this morning, if you've been born again by the power of Christ, you're a new creation. And Christ has given you his spirit so that you can have the mind of Christ. The world doesn't revolve around you at all. And and you as a Christian teenager should be serving, looking for unity in your home. You shouldn't be the problem. You should help mom. You should help dad. You should help your siblings. You should reach out to other teens. It's the same for every man or woman in the body of Christ outside of these walls. Do you have the mind of Christ? Are you willing to die to self? I think it would change the way we deal with one another. Maybe even in our social media. Do you know there's a lot said of our spiritual life by the way we respond, not just to the world. And I'm not talking about not having an opinion. Or, listen, I'm not talking about that. But how we respond to believers on our social media. You know, I'm going to use all capital letters. Ba 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 ba. How is that unifying? How does the world look into that thinking, those people know Christ, those people are a body of believers, those people are together in one spirit, one mind, not thinking about themselves, but preferring others. How we talk about others who are part of our fellowship outside of our fellowship. How we talk about saints in this congregation to people who aren't. I'm telling you something. The church is in bad shape today. And the dysfunction and the disunity of our world has crept into our midst. That that should not be the case. How are we displaying the wisdom of God when we live like this? How are we saying that we have the mind of Christ? We don't. We don't. I've got to be careful now since we're we're live streaming. I think my parents might watch um, my sermon. And so I just can't say anything I want to say. And so I want to give you an illustration about my family, and, and I'm just going to do it, so it doesn't matter now. But I grew up in a house of two other brothers and a sister. There are four of us. I am the oldest, and my sister is 15 years younger than I am. So she was saved of the insanity of, of three boys growing up. But I can vividly recall a time when we lived on 120th that the boys and I were by ourselves. Lisa had not come along into the picture yet. 
And, and so it was me, my brother Scott, my brother Brian. And sometime during the day, I think we had locked my youngest brother into the closet, which I think is normal for brothers to do. I, I think that's normal behavior, isn't it? So we locked him in, and then Scott and I got in some kind of fight. And I, I, I feel bad to this day about the fight that we got into because I, I, I beat on him. And there's no, I'm not making excuses. I'm just telling you. We got into a big fight, and, and, and Scott was, was the recipient of that. I'm sorry, Scott. And... Um, so I beat up on him a little bit. Then he walked outside, and he was having a really bad day. Because when he walked outside, the neighbor kids started beating on him. I don't know what he did that day, but it was bad. And you know what I did when I looked out the window? I ran outside, and I, and I helped the neighbor kid beat up my brother. No, I didn't do that. No, I didn't do that at all. My brother and I then beat up the neighbor kid. Because it didn't matter the disagreements we had before that. We were family. We're family. Now, I am not encouraging anger or hitting or anything like that. The point is, there is a bond with family that should be tighter than anything. And for the believer this morning, there is the bond by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has made a new, a new race, a new humanity. It's the church, and we're connected. And, and God says, it is through this people that I want to display my wisdom. I, I want to show not only the world, but angelic beings, the glory of my wisdom. And so I invite them to look into the church. And when they do, they should see a church that has the mind of Christ. It's not jockeying for their own ways, their own position, their own self-betterment but they're thinking of others more than themselves. And I submit to you this morning, the reason that we lack in this area is because we are not looking to Christ. And the mind of Christ is not our mind. And so my dear brother and sister this morning, I would implore you that, that even now, and as real life plays out in real time, that you and I would look to the glory of Jesus, know who he is. He is God. Look to his humiliation that the God of heaven stepped into our world to stand in our place, to take the wrath of sin that deserves to be punished. He did that for you. He did that for me. He died an excruciating, shameful death he was our substitute. That was his mind, not thinking about himself, but thinking about you. And because of that, he's been highly exalted. And he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his humiliation should be our example and motivation. And his exaltation should give us the power to know that we serve the Lord of creation. And so, dear brother, dear sister, we have all failed in this area. And we need to repent and to seek his face and ask God to show us clearly the Son, to see him in his splendor, his glory, before he came and after he came, but to look to his humiliation and to stand at the foot of the cross and ask God to give us the mind that was in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. May that be you. May that be me this morning. Let this mind be in you.
which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I, I pray that it conveyed the truth that is found in this beautiful song, song of the glory of Christ. Lord, forgive us. We are soon to forget the glory, the humiliation, and the exaltation of our Savior. May you embed in our hearts and our minds afresh this morning what Christ has done for us. May we plead with you to have this mind, not just when we show up and gather in the church, but in our everyday life as husbands and wives, as moms and dads, as grandparents, as single adults, as teenagers. There would be a different spirit about us, that, that we would put this mind on. The Spirit of God, you would open our eyes to the truth of this and empower us to do it. We know that you've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is not anything that we're asking that you have not already promised to give us. So, Lord, change our hearts and our desires. May this body of believers be a place that when people look into, they see the wisdom of the God of heaven. We love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.